Hey, thanks for listening to Everyday Greatness. It's a nice little show brought to you by our major sponsor, ARA Group, an employee-owned company that provides essential services for your facility and infrastructure and is one of Australia's biggest supporters of community projects. Everyday Greatness isn't rocket science. We're just trying to make you feel proud again of simply being a good, solid human being by speaking to some real people who found that the strength they needed to deal with any challenge in their life had been inside them the whole time. The ARA Group is proud to stand alongside Everyday Greatness, and we all hope that you enjoy the show. My guest today, Ken Marslow AM, is not a victim. His son, Michael, was. Michael was killed in a bungled armed robbery while he was working at a pizza hut in Ginelli in 1994 when he was shot dead. Ken swore he'd do something to avenge his son's death and do something he is. Ken started anti-violence movement Enough is Enough, which aims to bring society together and make sure that people don't feel such hatred they could gun down an innocent boy. Enough is Enough is not a lovey-dovey, harmonious group aiming for world peace. Enough is Enough understands that people do stupid things and make mistakes, but it asks them to take accountability for that stupidity, to put their hand up and admit they did something wrong and accept the consequences. Ken is not a complicated man. He thinks that if we have the integrity to do what we say we will, embrace diversity and have courage to lead positive change in the world, we'll all live in a society where people respect each other, even if they don't particularly like them. And people can discuss differences of, of opinion and not resort to violence to sort things out. Putting his money where his mouth is, Ken hired one of his son's killers to work for Enough is Enough, which shows that Ken is a man of action, not just fluffy words. Also a generous man, Ken has given me the honour of being my guest on Everyday Greatness, so I'd like to welcome Ken Marslu, AM, to Everyday Greatness. Ken, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Barnaby, and thank you for having me on. You're very welcome. Now, before we get too deep and emotional, I want to ask you a question as Ken Marslu, the human being. I believe you're an enthusiastic sailor and you have some pretty ridiculous <laughs> names for your boats. What are, uh, can, can what are some of the most ridiculous? Well, no, excuse me, Barnaby, not ridiculous, they're relevant. <laughs> right. What are some of the most relevant names then? I, it was about 20 years. I didn't sail for 20 years and um, after my first marriage broke up, I went back to sailing and um, I sailed a, a couple of other people's boats first and I thought, I'll get one for myself. So I went out to try and buy something, money being an issue. Um, my first boat in the second round was called It's Not the Size. <laughs> because I wanted a big one and I could only get a little one. Don't go there. Don't go there, Barnaby. Right. Um, it, we were sort of middle back of the fleet, nothing flash. But then I got the opportunity to get a professionally built boat. Um, and so I grabbed that and it was called, well, I called it, um, Spirit of, and I, it was spirit of Michael, spirit of competition, spirit of whatever you wanted, right. uh, but it was spirit of. 
And uh, then the last boat, I, I sold sold that boat because of health reasons. And um, I was quite ill and I thought, oh, I had a heart attack and I thought, um, oh, I've got to give up sailing. Anyway, I had another heart attack and I thought, well, bugger this. If I'm going to die, I'm going to mm-hmm. die doing what I want to do. So we bought another boat and it had been laying under a canvas uh, for some time and wasn't exactly the flashiest boat of all. And my mate and I were working on it one night and I wanted to give it a name like Merlin or Excalibur, something out of the Arthurian legends. And um, my mate says to me, what happens if you have another heart attack while we're out sailing? He said, do I have to give you mouth to mouth? And I said, oh, mate, that puts a whole new meaning on hello <laughs> sailor, doesn't it? <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, so I decided we'd call it the ambulance. <laughs> and we won a couple of state titles and a national title in that boat. Um, I then sold it well, at the top of our game in that class. And I had a short break and I, I really had withdrawal symptoms. So I got another boat, a bigger boat, um, and I call that intensive care unit. <laughs> so because that's what you get after an ambulance. And had I got another boat, I was going to call it Heaven Can Wait. <laughs> so there's the progression. That's, and that's I a- think they're very relevant. There's a Ken Mazu life story told in the name of, of boats. Yes, there you go. <laughs> All right, now let's get deep, Ken. Immediately after Michael was shot dead, what was your initial reaction? Did you have any interest in making the world a better place or was it all about revenge? No, it was all about revenge. I, look, just one of the things that you, you've mentioned there, Michael was killed. Michael wasn't killed, he was murdered. And I think people duck around that for sensibility reasons, yeah. um, call it what it was, and that's exactly what it was. And did I want to make the world a better place? No. My initial reaction is not. I think it's every father's job description. If anyone touches a kid, you kill them. And that was oh, my original thought was go out and get them. But I think I invo- evolved as a human being. But when we started Enough is Enough off, look, that was hypocrisy of the highest order because I had in the back of my mind, yeah, I want to stop people from getting hurt, but I wanted to hurt four people. So there was a level of hypocrisy with the beginning of Enough is Enough. Yeah. So what what was it that made you go from wanting cold-blooded revenge to wanting to start an anti-violence movement? Look, I, it was a long story, but I'll keep it as brief as I can. Yeah. Uh, the minister that was at Michael's service uh, read out a sermon, and the sermon was about don't do the things that Michael wouldn't like. Don't be like the people that hurt Michael. And it really resonated with me that, now, Michael was a he was a gentle kid. I think I'm the only one he ever went crook at. Um, he was starting to become a primary school teacher and he really cared about kids. And I thought about how he well, it was actually challenged by a police officer. Uh, would your son like what you're planning to do? As I made no secret about what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that resonated that in the sermon. 
and I started to think about there's got to be a better way because all we're going to do is um, escalate the violence if I had acted the way I initially set out to do. Uh, it was only going to – the cycle of violence was going to continue. Yeah. And I started looking at talk, talking to kids initially about responsibility. When you said I'm not a victim, that's really important because I never did see myself as a victim. The definition of a victim is someone who has no choices. And there may be times in your life when you don't understand your choices and therefore you can think like a victim. But the minute that you start to understand you've got choices, you choose to be a victim or not. And that's not to be a victim. Yeah. You get on with your life, but you carry a bag full of anchors. But if you can work on those anchors, you can then take a journey, victim, survivor, thriver. You can take the worst experience you've ever had in your life and do something positive with it, and you become a thriver. So it's a journey that some people want to take that are, are seen as victims, and it's a journey that others choose and their life. As you said, yeah. um, Michael was the victim. I'm not, and I'm not. Yes, I lost a son, and it pissed me off like you wouldn't believe, um, but I'm not a victim. And I think we're living in a society that is all about victims. Um, you know, post-traumatic stress, what about yeah. post-traumatic growth? Why do some people get impacted with a situation and never move forward. And why do other people get impacted with the same situation and actually grow from it? And I think that's a mentality that since society is actually embracing the victim side rather than the growth side. Yeah. Now, Ken, you're giving us some incredible words of wisdom, but our connection is breaking up a little bit. If you have a window or a door or something closer outside, could I just ask you to move towards that? Sure, so can be sure. Crystal clear. <clears throat> and while you're doing that, let me ask you another question. In Ken Marslu's ideal world today, what would justice look like for your son's killers if that happened again yesterday? The way I thought, can you hear me now? Yes, that's perfect. Okay. The way that I thought at the time Michael was murdered, I, I wanted the death penalty. I actually went out and petitioned for the death penalty uh, with a politician called Tony Windsor. Yeah. Then as I've evolved, um, and I think it's, what, it's an obligation as a human being, um, I've, I look at justice differently now. I, Aristotle summed justice up in the early days as due reward for good or evil. Yeah. But it is so much more complicated now. We don't have a justice system. What we have is a legal process. Uh, it's not all about justice because the scales of justice are supposed to be balanced and they're not. Yeah. Uh, we're getting them there. I, I guess as a society we're getting them there. But they are out of balance, and you challenged me about that term, um, uh, an offender-friendly process. Yep. Well, the fact is when I first landed in it, that is exactly what I saw. It was all about the offender. How could we make it easier on the offender, whatever? 
uh, and I really challenged that, that we were sort of, we were the parents of a murdered young man and we were treated like we didn't exist. And that's not justice. Mm -hmm. Um, We've done a lot of work in that space over the years to create a justice system. The first big step that I believe uh, we took was with, it went through Parliament as the Michael Marsloo legislation, but it, it was about restorative justice where a victim can face an offender and at least stand up in court and say how the crime has impacted on them. I had to listen to the character references of the four blokes that murdered Michael. And we couldn't say a word about Michael. And you have no idea how angry I got in court when that happened. Now, victims have the opportunity to do that. They can get up in court. They have a voice in court as a result of that legislation. Then there was the Victims Charter of Rights. Victims were swept under the carpet. Oh, you don't matter. Unless you're going to give evidence, you're not involved in this. And one of the interesting things at at a court hearing, I went along, it wasn't one of Michael's one, but a a judge said, I don't want emotion in my court. Oh, right. I'm I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, you dickhead. (laughs) For these people that have lost someone, this is the most emotional time of their lives and you're saying, don't bring emotion into my court? And so... I think we have to do a lot still more educating of judges to understand what a justice system is and how to deal with the two components. But the Victim's Charter of Rights grew out of that um, and we got ourselves – I didn't want to be a talker. I actually wanted to do something. Uh, I got myself on the Premier's Council on Crime Prevention um, the Attorney General's Victims Advisory Board and the New South Wales Sentencing Council, all with the intention of introducing legislation that supported victims, but also about justice, the way we deal with offenders to get a positive outcome, the way we deal with victims to start the healing process. So we've been heavily involved in legislative change. Yeah to support the justice system. I hope that answers your question. Perfectly. Uh, once again, you, I think when you said just then you didn't want to be a talker, I think you failed that mission. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> all right. Uh, now, if all that what you were saying about victims and, and taking accountability as offenders is true, why did you offer your son's killer, Carl Kramer, a job? Okay, that was against um, good advice and a lot of criticism. Didn't I cop some flack over that? Look, to go from where I was, I I met um, the offenders in what we call a restorative justice conference. Right. And I made, that's where the families of the victims and the offenders come together to discuss what had happened. And I was starting to see things differently than purely get even. Although I, I reckon I've got even, but in a different way. Yeah. Um, 
I met this bloke and I actually threatened him at the conference. I said, if you don't do something as a result of what you've done to my son, I'm going to be your worst nightmare. And I meant it. Anyway, um, we wrote back a couple of, backwards and forwards a couple of times and I asked him if he would assist me in turning young offenders away from the direction he'd gone. Yeah, because a lot of young offenders will listen to someone with creds, street creds, and this bloke had street creds. Yeah. Um, so I thought, did I want to be friends with him? No. Um, did I even want to work with him? No. But if I could actually get something positive to come out of the relationship, let's have a go. And so I made a deal with him that he would come out, uh, become a role model, and then work with me with young offenders in the hope that we could turn them away from a life of crime. Well, it didn't work. Right. And he got out and then got into trouble within about a month of getting out and then continued to get into trouble, so I walked away from it. But interestingly enough, over the years, we do a lot of work in prisons, and um, interestingly enough, over the years, we have met other prison inmates that have actually come on board and worked with us. So that some of them really articulate and brilliant with the, with the young offenders in turning them away. Yeah. I think we had quite a bit of success in that space. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a very, very effective way to go. Um, just didn't work with Carl Kramer. No, didn't so work. You talked about offender-friendly societies earlier, do you feel yeah. like it takes strength and bravery to say out loud in public that we live in an offender-friendly society and there's so many oh. so-called do-gooders around? Well, mate, I, I even brand myself as a do-gooder, uh, but I'm not a bleeding heart. And I, I think that's what you were trying to say there. Does it take strength and bravery? Hell no. Um, I, I just think if you have a look at the system, you would say that. Um, it, need, it needs change. It needs constant change as uh, laws change, as legislation changes. The system needs to look more at, I guess, a heat, focus more on the rehabilitation of the offender and on the healing of the victim. Justice system, due reward, good or evil, we should be working with both sides. And unless we start working with both sides, the tendency is to separate the victim from the offender. I think unless we start to work with the victim and the offender, let me put it to you this way. When you look at the world through the eyes of a victim, that's how you see the world. And I know I've been there. When you look at the world through, through the eyes of an offender, that's how you see the world. If you work with both victims and offenders, you see the big picture. While you're working with one group individually, you are not seeing the big picture. And so unless we get a justice system that does work with both sides to produce a positive outcome, we're not doing it right. When you have a look at overseas, some of the stats from overseas, Japan, even Singapore, the Scandinavian countries, their reoffending rates are incredibly low. 
I think there's something less than 20%. Yeah. Yet in New South Wales, it's 70%. So what they're doing overseas, we could implement over here. Um, but we we don't seem to, there's a reluctance because of public scrutiny to challenge some of the ways we've done it. You know that old saying, if you continue to do what you've always done, yeah. you'll continue to get what you've always got. If you want something new, you've got to try something new. Yeah. But a lot of policymakers are scared of pissing the public off because what needs to be done needs to be done outside the box. Yep, fair enough. So let me ask you about changing attitudes in society. Is I think a lot of people in society think going from a bad person to a good person can be as simple as just flicking a switch and being a better person the next day. Is that no. right or is it no. a case of having good role models around you? An accumulation of good examples over a long period of time. Look, it's having a strategy, being prepared to change, and then an environment that offers you the opportunity for positive change. It's it's not you can't just flick a switch. Although I have some seen people in the work that we do yep. have what I would call aha moments when they've gone oh. This is my life. Right. I don't want this and start the work. And it can be as simple as that, but it is not that simple uh, for a lot of people. So our habits are well ingrained. Um, and if we're not open to change, and many people aren't, but change is one of the most con biggest constant in our life, and yet most people will challenge change at every step. Yeah. So. Uh, it will take, like, we, the processes that we run in prison, if we started earlier and finished later, like maybe three or four years outside of prison, we've got a chance of changing people. But the system that we have at the moment um, is almost knee-jerk right. to, the, to the point that there's not enough for the offender to initiate positive change. Yeah. And the other side of that is with victims, I don't think there is enough support and giving of responsibility to heal yourself. I, it's, sometimes it's easier to stay as a victim than it is to go and take your life back. Yeah. And that's and I think that's that's a mentality that's permeating society. That you know, everyone's a victim of something. Yeah. And we're not. We need to be accountable. I think at the moment the two biggest issues I see with society, number one, a greater focus on rights than responsibilities. Number one. Yeah. Particularly with young people. And number two, the lack of positive adult male role models. Right. And a role model doesn't have to be a celebrity or one, although they do have a big responsibility. That's part of being high profile. But dads, um, sporting coaches, people, just ordinary people, yeah. if they understand they can make a difference, it's like, 
dropping a pebble in a pond. An ordinary person can make a huge difference if they become a role model. And it's not hard to work out what a role model is. If you wouldn't like it done to you, why would you do it to someone else? It's probably as simple as that. If you do something nice for someone else, again, the ripple goes out. Do something nasty, the ripple goes out. So do nice stuff. And it's real easy to work out what's nice and what's not. Ken, I couldn't agree with you more. And you've been one of those good role models, setting a good example, trying to create those ripples of kindness and niceness for well over two decades. Are we getting somewhere in justice reform? Is it getting better? Look, we're evolving, but I still think there's such a long way to go. Um, You see organisations like Ralph Kelly with the uh, Stay Kind movement. Ralph suffered a huge loss. First of all, his son Thomas was uh, killed in a one-punch thing, killed by a coward, Um, and then his other son Stuart took his own life. Um, because he couldn't handle all of the, the rigmarole that went on as a result of that. So and he started the Stay Kind movement. And it is, it's pretty well as simple as that. Just do something nice every day. Yeah. But a lot of people won't. They'll go out and they'd rather do something nasty than something nice. Very true. Very true. You've got the Morecams. You mentioned the Morecams to me off air. Um, again, they've done something to change the way, not so much be nice, but be safe. And again, I think that's where we come from, is wanting people to be safe. And if you can create a safe environment, you're more likely to have kindness around it. Very true. Am I making sense there? You're making perfect sense, and I think it's something that a lot of people could take a lot out of just a small acts of kindness accumulated, make the world a better place. You don't have to Absolutely. donate $50,000 to charity one day and call yourself a better person the next day. So that's one of those things you just touched on. We work really hard on doing that, but getting funding for us, because we work with victims and offenders and we get criticised for that and yeah. it makes it difficult for us to get funding because of that stand, oh, you've got to work with victims. Do I? What I'm trying to do is to stop people from becoming victims in the first place. But when you work in that space with offenders, you're less likely to attract um, funding. So that's an issue for us as well. It always has been. But we continue to do what we do with what we've got the best way we can. Yeah, that's all any of us can do. Let me ask you about that space these days. Is it hard as a human being trying to be politically correct while also trying to fight for a more assertive justice system? (laughs) Ah, political correctness. (laughs) A veil on the truth, in my opinion. Um, Look, I I think we've got some huge issues. When you start, we, we have a lot of students work Uh, in our organisation, they do uh, placements with us over a period of time. The language that they use is completely foreign to me. Um, What they're teaching them at university and school, 
I don't think is positive. It's it's an avoidance issue. To be politically correct, you're not calling a spade a spade anymore. You're calling it, uh, you know, something to move dirt with. I, and I, I struggle with that, and I often wonder, is it my age, um, my generation? But I don't think there's a lot of positives coming out of political correctness, personal opinion. Now, just let me bring you back to the Kellys and the Morecams for a second. Sure. They seem to be so strong and so resilient along with you that I, as a, as a member of society, we kind of see you guys as mystical superheroes. Do you feel I, like you or those families have anything uh, different to the rest of us? Look, I, maybe the Morecams have. I sure as hell don't. Um, I'm just an ordinary bloke. And, uh, but if I see something that I think needs change, I'll go out and do it. Um, and sometimes it's whatever the cost. But no, I, I, nothing special. Seriously, I, just like an ordinary bloke trying to do the best he can with what he's got and trying to make something positive out of a negative. And I think that's one of the things in society we don't do today. Um, so maybe a little unique in that space, that there is nothing so bad that you can't find a positive in it. Yeah. So what do you say then if you don't think you have something extra? What do you say to people that come to you thinking you're Ken Marsley, the strength-building guru, when they say, oh, Ken, what have you got? You're so strong. What have you got that I don't? What can I do? But they have everything that I've got. It's, I, one, one of the th- this is what they call a strengths-based approach. You know, you talk to the guys in prison, guys and girls in prison, and they, you know, oh, I hadn't got this. Look at the strength that you've taken in life to get so far. Use it for something positive. The same for victims. You know, you don't know what's inside until you go looking for it. And I think it's in all of us to be something special if you go inside and find out what makes you tick. Working on yourself is probably one of the most important things you can do. might sound a little bit selfish, but when you're okay, the whole world is okay. Very wise, very wise man, and I couldn't agree with you more, Ken. Let me talk to you about those aha moments you talked about earlier. Have you had anybody come up to you and say they had an aha moment and they decided they were on the verge of being violent and decided not to be because of something you had said to them? Yes. um, That's probably the reason I do this work. If I didn't think I was making a difference, probably go and get caught up in the corporate world again. Um, yes, it's it's happened a few times. I've been walking in a shopping centre and a, a young man or young girls come up to me in the shopping centre. I sat through your seminar and do you know you've changed my life? And the amount of people in prison, the letters we get after we've, we've done a series of jail seminars, saying that we've made a difference in people's lives. I stood up the night we started Enough is Enough, which was uh, the 27th of February, 1994. Uh, Not that I remember, clearly. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I said, I'm here to make a difference 
not to make money because that was the one of the things. Yeah. I, I've since I've since come to realise that we need money to make a difference. <laughs> but um, anyway, that that is what drives me when somebody says you've made me think differently. Oh, some of the prisoners have come up and said you've changed my life. I've done programs in here for five years and this is the first one that's ever made sense. You know, those sorts of things um, really, and the letters we get back from kids and from uh, prisons saying that, and these people don't write letters easily. So it's, yeah. yeah. So yes, there are aha moments. And some of the guys that have come out of prison and girls and worked with us, um, as a result of hearing one of the seminars or whatever, is amazing. So, yes, people do respond to aha moments and hopefully we can still keep initiating some aha moments in people's lives. Beautiful. It must, must make Enough is Enough all feel worthwhile. So tell me a it's, bit more about Enough is Enough. You have programs that help offenders with stress, anger management, kicking drug and alcohol habits, and even pays fines on behalf of offenders. How do all of your programs help society at large? Look, if we can stop someone re-offending, um, we have less victims, and so that alone, plus the philosophy that we've got about, I guess, being nice, I don't usually encapsulate it in that word, it's just about being responsible um, for your actions. Yeah. Look, the programs aren't focused just on offenders either. We do a lot of work with victims. And in the same vein, um, we try to stop offenders from reoffending, but we encourage victims to take back their lives. Some of the programs we do, um, like an art therapy class for victims of domestic violence, and isn't that on the increase? Yeah. I think I, I don't think it's on the increase the the, um, the issue. I think it's being reported more, and we've now got an opportunity to do something about. It. That's one of the things that I I sell them to males. You don't hit women no matter what. Right. Um, but we do a lot of work with, with victims as well. We have the one-on-one counselling. We do telephone counselling. Um, we run the stress and anger management workshop for both victims and offenders. We have the art therapy. Um, there's a whole range of stuff we do for them, but we also work with offenders as well. Um, we're a little unique with offenders, probably not politically correct. Um, not probably, definitely not politically correct uh, on purpose, but it seems to work. Uh, to get people to understand the damage that they've done, be held accountable and consider their actions next time they get in the same set of circumstances. So if people listening can, if what you've said has struck a chord in people's heads and they want to help out making the world or making Australia a less violent place and a a kinder place to live in, what can they do to support Enough is Enough, either through acts or through donations? Look, we're always looking for volunteers, that's that's one, um, or goods in kind that we can raffle or 
sell at a fundraiser. But sponsorship is one of the, the keys to us moving forward. As I said, we're, we're challenged because we work with both victims and offenders and I, I guess the system and the government says that working with both is not, you know, feasible. And yet I promise you that in due course this is the only way that we're going to change the way things are as when we work with victims and offenders together. So if people wanted to donate to us, um, depending on what area they want us to focus on, do they want us to focus on domestic violence? Do they want us to focus on school programs? We are happy to take a donation and focus it on the specific areas that the donation uh, would like us to or if somebody could donate to us and we just put it in our general fund so that we can work with whoever comes up. You know, the cost of uh, hiring a psychiatrist these days, psychologist, I'm sorry, um, is very expensive and the people that work with us are unique in as much as they understand what we're trying to achieve. Um, so we do need help um, as soon as possible. And where can people go if they want to offer you help? Okay. The and telephone number is 95424029. Uh, the email is uh, team at enough is enough one word lowercase dot org dot au we are based in Janali in New South Wales uh, we work primarily in New South Wales but we offer advice in other states as well so we would appreciate any help we can get what we've struck a chord with a few people is um, monthly donations rather than uh, one large lump sum, a little bit trickle feeders, and yep. we can use it in that way. Uh, or if there's a major sponsor would like to pick us up, we'd be happy to promote them as part of our work. Well, Ken Marslow, I hope you get a stream of people offering help for Enough is Enough. I think you and Enough is Enough are incredible things and human beings, and I, for one, am definitely catching what you're pitching. So thank you so much for joining us on Everyday Greatness. Barnaby, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. I think you're amazing as well with what you're doing. And uh, good luck. Thank you, Ken, and stop it. Thank, thank you all for listening. Thank you to the ARA Group for being our major sponsor for the fifth year in a row. Thank you to Look Studio Australia for recording this podcast so expertly. And I hope that when you've all put your devices down in a little while, You lift your head up, push your shoulders back and walk down the street proud of being an everyday Joe or Joanne bag of donuts. I hope you can join me next week where I'll be talking to, sorry, where Scott Gibbons, my co-host and I will be talking to former Sydney Swan author and content designer Brandon Jack about how hard it was for him to choose to be the man he wanted to be and not the man people thought he should be. I hope you can join us for that one. But in the meantime, if you'd like to find out more about this show, go to our website, everydaygreatness.com.au or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube or LinkedIn. Thank you again, Ken, and thank you all for joining me.